Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 37, The Suitcase. On June 19th, 2020, it's a beautiful day in Seattle, at a time of year when people were celebrating graduations around the country with their loved ones. Well, they would have been if it weren't for COVID restrictions. I'm not even going to get into COVID restrictions. I'm sure most of us remember it all too well. But I will say, it was a time when people were still getting super creative, trying to figure out what they could do outside their homes. And on that day, three teens had been randomly assigned an unknown destination. See, in 2020, an app called Randonautica had become super popular. Basically, it would randomly assign nearby coordinates for people to just go to. Randonautica encouraged people to go outside their day-to-day existence. And let's face it, during lockdown, that wasn't very many places. Randonautica would spit out random coordinates, and then randonauts, as they were called, would set off on a quest and go explore the space and create new experiences, which is exactly what these teenagers were doing. And they received some very specific coordinates to Alki Beach in West Seattle. Now, Alki is absolutely gorgeous. In the summertime, it's the place you want to be for pickup volleyball, beachcombing, and it's also a great space to walk, bike, rollerblade, all while taking in the view across the Puget Sound of downtown Seattle. It's around 1.30 in the afternoon, and the randonauts go to their coordinates, and they see a black suitcase that's washed up basically on a pile of big, black, sort of jagged rocks, the kind of place you'd have to watch your step climbing down to get to, and the teens decide to start recording a TikTok video. You know, a part of the fun. And two of the girls start getting closer to this black suitcase, and they're giggling, and they're wondering if there might be money inside. I mean, basically, this whole experience is a treasure hunt. Clearly, it's exciting. Here's sound from the actual TikTok video. Guys, we found it. And in the spirit of adventure, one of the girls gets closer. But then the excitement energy changes. As the teen closest to the suitcase describes a sharp smell emanating from it. Suddenly, it's not really funny anymore. That's how foul the odor is. It's become a reality check. And this impromptu treasure hunt becomes a nervous and yet undeniable morbid curiosity. What could possibly be in the suitcase that could create such a stench? A member of the group picks up a stick and she's able to sort of jimmy the zipper down, flipping open the suitcase flap. It's a black garbage bag that shrouds the square contents inside, which only deepens the curiosity and the concern, which becomes great enough for one of the girls to call 911. It's about 2.09 p.m. Okay, so so she's calling the police so we can see if it's actually a dead body or it's just food. It would take more than two hours for Seattle police to arrive at the scene because of staffing shortages as a result of protests which had devolved into civil unrest over the murder of George Floyd. Seattle police officers don't arrive to the scene until after 4 p.m., which meant they were on the clock because the tide was coming back in. In fact, the suitcase wasn't resting on the rocks anymore. Immediately, officers spread out, searching the beach, and one of them spied the suitcase just east of its previous resting place. Now, it was partially submerged in a different outcropping of rocks. The case, still unzipped, was now empty. The black plastic bag that had been described by the 911 caller was gone. 
A quick scan of the horizon would reveal the black trash bag floating in the Puget Sound, and the contents inside of the plastic bag had shifted in such a way that a human torso was partially protruding from outside of the plastic. The Harbor Patrol was called to retrieve the remains, and officers continued trolling the beach. The tide was coming in. If there was anything else to recover, they had to do it quickly. Moments later, another grisly find. A huge duffel bag, roughly 50 yards east of the black suitcase. Not wanting to contaminate the evidence, officers would use a nearby log to push the duffel bag closer to the rocks. And as they did so, they saw a huge hole on the side of the duffel bag. It had been big enough for a smaller white trash bag to float out. With another log, they corralled the smaller white bag back to shore before it could float out to sea. But from the outline of the white plastic bag, there appeared to be a human foot inside. Homicide detectives were called out and briefed on the situation that the randonauts, remember the kids who were on a fun adventure, who had stumbled onto the suitcase, they were interviewed. Detectives were also made aware of the fact that an earlier call had come into the 911 call center from someone who'd been walking earlier that morning and filmed the floating suitcase. Don't do that. Do not do that. Yeah, good job. Investigators were also made aware that the video the teenagers had taken had been uploaded to TikTok. It was going viral. King 5 News reports live from Alki Beach. Well, most of the people we talked to today had the same question. Did those bags of human remains wash up on shore here on Alki, or were they placed here? So far, Seattle Police hasn't released much information. Friday afternoon, someone found a bag near the water on Alki Beach that seemed suspicious and called police. The officers that responded to the call realized that bag was filled with human body parts. But it wasn't just one bag. Police say several bags were found and one was floating in the water. I was stunned and shocked. It's, it's terrible news. John Rohde lives in West Seattle and says Alki is so busy, he questions how the remains got there with no one noticing. At this time until, you know, dinner time, it's crowded all the time. It's frightening to think that there's someone out there that would uh, do something like that. Uh, so far, we don't know if it was a male or female, and um, it's up to the King County Medical Examiner's Office to determine the identity of that person whose remains were found. Live in West Seattle, Kayla Lafferty, King 5 News. The medical examiner determined that the human remains didn't belong to just one victim, but two, a man and a woman. Through fingerprint identification, the medical examiner was able to determine that the remains belonged to 35-year-old Jessica Lewis and her 27-year-old boyfriend, Austin Wenner. It was noted that both victims had animal feathers on their remains. Four days after the remains were recovered, another duffel bag would be found in the nearby Duwamish River with human remains inside. The ME would confirm that these additional remains belonged to the victims. They had animal feathers as well. The ME's office would classify the manner of Jessica and Austin's death as homicides. They'd been beaten and shot prior to being dismembered. They knew how they died, but they had no idea what had happened to Jessica Lewis and Austin Wenner, and who was responsible for these grisly murders. The only thing they knew for sure was that the killer was willing to do pretty much anything to cover their tracks. Investigators looked to Jessica and Austin's family for answers. From them, they learned that Austin was known for having a huge heart, that he loved the outdoors, dogs, and country music, that he was absolutely in love with Jessica. They did everything together. Jessica had four children. At the time of her death, two of her children had graduated from high school. Jessica would be described as a beautiful ray of sunshine who was incredibly thoughtful. And at one time, Jessica had worked at an assisted living facility caring for the elderly. She and Austin had been dating for eight years. Jessica and Austin's families had been living through hell over the last few weeks, agonizing over where their missing loved ones were. Now they knew, and the circumstances of their deaths were horrific. Jessica's aunt Gina would speak to Q13 just a couple weeks after Jessica and Austin's remains were recovered. I want to believe that they didn't suffer. I couldn't even believe that was their story. Because I'd seen it, trying to look for them, 
But in a million years, I never thought that was them. That was their story. It absolutely broken. My brother's shock when he told me what happened and just the hurt. I don't want them to be remembered for the brutality. I don't want them to be remembered in any violent way. I want them to be remembered for their, you know, their humanity and their kindness. I mean, they had their struggles, um, like we all do. That's just shows how much they did care for each other. They didn't ever leave each other when things got hard or rough, and they always stuck it out together for the ups and downs. Well, I don't think anybody's gonna be able to heal fully or even come close to it until these people are, are caught. But when they found out about the TikTok video, the family would demand that it be taken down. Eventually it would be, but not before being viewed 30 million times. When detectives spoke to Austin's mother, she explained that her son and Jessica had been living in Burien, which is about 20 minutes away from Alki Beach, that they'd been renting a room in the home of a guy named Michael Dudley, and that they'd been living there since 2019. The last time Austin's mom had seen her son and Jessica was on May 29th, roughly three weeks before their remains were recovered. On that day, Austin and Jessica had come over to her place for a visit and to earn a little money helping with yard work. It was during this visit that the couple shared how tenuous their living situation had become. Austin claimed that a group of men had burst into their room at Mike's place. They were armed with guns and they beat them up, demanding that Jessica and Austin pay back money they owed to them. It's unclear what had caused the men to demand the money. According to court documents, Austin's mom and cousin would tell police about the alleged assault, and Austin's cousin would say that he didn't know what caused the men to attack Austin and Jessica over money, but that he believed it involved some type of, quote, criminal fraud activity involving credit cards or a COVID-19 $1,200 refund card. Austin's mom would drive with the detectives that day and show them the house in Burien, where her son and Jessica had lived. She pointed out the large metal gate in front of a long driveway that led to the house on Ambon Boulevard. This property was unique in that it was very close to the Seattle International Airport, and yet it was somewhat secluded, given the busy area, on nearly an acre of property. Austin's mom was also able to give them Mike's phone number. With this information, investigators were able to determine that the house did belong to a Michael Dudley, who was 62 years old. Investigators would also speak with Austin's father, who told them that he'd gone to the house on Ambon Boulevard to look for his son. He'd been worried. Jessica and Austin were always together, and Austin's dad hadn't seen either of them since early June. They were supposed to get together the following week, and when Austin and Jessica were a no-show, he called Jessica over and over again. Apparently, Austin's phone had been broken, and everyone knew that if they wanted to get in touch with Austin, they just called Jessica's phone. But Jessica didn't pick up. Her radio silence was a huge red flag. So Austin's dad drove out to the house on Ambon Boulevard multiple times, looking for his son. And on one of these visits, he spoke with their landlord, Mike, who basically told him that Austin and Jessica had left in a hurry. They didn't even take their clothing or other personal belongings. And he'd said that they'd been attacked by men, that they had enemies, intimating that that was why they left in a hurry. Austin's father was suspicious when he drove away and saw what appeared to be his son's clothing in the garbage can outside the house. Detectives would speak to Jessica's father, too, on June 30th, 11 days after his daughter's remains were recovered. Jessica's dad said that the last time he'd seen his daughter in Austin, he'd met them at a grocery store and given them some food and money, but he hadn't spoken to them since. Investigators obtained Jessica's cell phone records. They saw that her phone had stopped receiving or sending cell phone data as of June 9th, 2020, which was a Tuesday. One of the last two calls Jessica made on her phone was to Michael Dudley, her landlord, at approximately 7.01, and then another call to Dudley at 7.08. The calls hit off the cell phone tower less than a mile away from the Ambon Boulevard residence. Investigators would receive more disturbing news from Dr. Kathy Taylor, a renowned King County medical examiner who, after a thorough examination of the remains of Austin and Jessica, believed that they had been murdered and dismembered during the evening hours and possibly in an inside space. 
These findings were based on the fact that there was very little insect activity on the victim's remains, which is typically what happens when bodies are left outside. It was further believed that possibly multiple people had been involved in the homicide and or dismemberment. Dr. Taylor came to this conclusion based on the cuts made to the victims, which appeared disorganized with multiple cutting apparatuses and methods. This was important information. They knew that the murders probably took place inside. They had to find that crime scene. Without that, it would be hard to connect the killer to the case. Fortunately, in the weeks following the recovery of Jessica and Austin's remains, more witnesses would come forward with dark details of what life was like behind the closed doors of Michael Dudley's house on Ambon Boulevard. It seems that Jessica Lewis and Austin Wenner weren't his only tenants. One former roommate would describe that the relationship they had observed between Jessica, Austin, and their landlord, Mike, was uncomfortable. Jessica and Austin would confide in this roommate that they were scared living there that they believed Mike Dudley was, quote, kind of crazy. The former roommate described the last time that they'd seen Jessica and Austin at Mike's place, where they appeared panicked. A week or so before, Austin had told the roommate about the altercation where men in the area had busted into their room and beat him and Jessica over the $1,200, describing this event to police as being about the, quote, check thing. Another witness would say that the guys that came and beat up Austin and Jessica had written Austin's name on a bullet and left it in the mailbox on Ambon Boulevard. And Austin's aunt, who was a friend of Michael Dudley's, who had at one time stayed at his home before moving to California and was the one who introduced Austin and Jessica to him, would also confirm that Austin had told her that he had received a bullet in Michael's mailbox with his name on it. After Austin and Jessica's names were released to the public, a man who lived next door to Michael Dudley's place contacted the homicide unit, saying that he'd seen Austin at Michael Dudley's house and remembered hearing gunshots coming from the property during the month of June. But it wasn't until late July that Seattle police would catch a break in the case. A woman named Jennifer would come forward with information about what had happened to Jessica Lewis and Austin Wenner. First of all, did you know my two victims? I did not know them personally, and I had never seen them personally. I just know that they were residences in the bedroom that I now am a resident at. Okay. And do you know their names? Yes, I do. What are they? Jessica Lewis and Austin Wenner. How did you learn of their names? I learned of their names because my landlord and a friend of mine named Kimberly that I introduced to my current landlord was renting a room there prior to me moving in. And who is your current landlord? His name is Michael Dudley. Jennifer had met Mike through mutual friends in March of 2020. So you met him through his friend. Yes. And then you moved in uh, beginning of June then pretty much. First week or so of June. Yeah, I thought he was a great guy. He's really soft-spoken, older man, had a huge house. Jennifer would explain that Mike was a friend of the guy that she was renting a room from. And that from time to time, Mike would come over and visit. And it was during one of these visits that she recalled him complaining about his tenants, Austin and Jessica. He used to come over to Dave's house and complain what piece of shits that they are, that they don't pay him rent, that they won't move out. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, they already had like bad, he already had bad juju with them at that point. Okay. And that they would be mean that they would lock because he's got a long, heavy Joe by the house. There's a gate at the front. And lock, they would put locks on it so he couldn't get back in. The great, the gate at yeah. the street? Mm-hmm. In June, Jennifer's own living situation had soured. She was so desperate to get out of the situation that Michael Dudley, on June 8th, came over and picked up Jennifer's stuff from where she'd been staying. And he brought her things to his house on Ambon Boulevard. So June 8th, technically, he came and moved me out of my past residence, which is a good friend of him. Mm-hmm. So my old landlord and Mike, Michael, uh, my current landlord are friends. So that's how I came about meeting Mike. So he moved me out of June 8th because I was in a bad situation and he brought all my items over there. But Jennifer wouldn't actually come to the house until late into the evening the following night on June 9th. Jennifer would describe Michael Dudley's house on Ambon Boulevard saying it was very private, considering it was so close to the airport. It's a big piece of property, right? Yes, it's huge. Long driveway? Yeah. Okay. Any other buildings on that property? 
Yeah, remember? there's a chicken coop. There's a garage. Is now it, he's got 16 cars. The garage. It's, his garage is used for storage. His chickens also have taken over the garage. Okay. When she stepped through the door late on the night of June 9th, from the very beginning, things inside the house just didn't seem right. After midnight or something. And it was on the 9th? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Do you remember when you got there, was anybody else there? No, it was super, super quiet, but this uh, Mike's glasses had been broken, and he had looked like he had been in a scuffle. He had, like, what I would call defense wounds. Right. Scratches and everything. Mike didn't go into any detail about why his glasses were broken or explain the scratch marks. Clearly something had happened. But when Jennifer arrived, she had a lot on her mind that night. She'd come on the fly to escape that living situation that she'd been in. Her plan was to stay in one of the upstairs bedrooms with her friend Kim, who also rented a room for Michael Dudley. So when you finally move in there... Yeah, I have. I don't have a room. Whenever I stay there, I would just stay in the room with Kim. Did he finally give you your own room? No, not until he gave me their room after he cleaned up the mess is what he goes in. So you want me back? I'm going to tell you how that happened. Yeah. Okay. Jennifer had stayed at Mike's house in the past, and whenever she had before, she just slept in Kim's room. So that's what she planned on doing that night. Jennifer's friend Kim, remember she rented a room for Mike too, she'd come with her that night, and she took a shower first, and then afterwards she left. So it was just Jennifer in the house with Mike. At some point, Jennifer went and took a shower, and instead of going into Kim's room, she crept into what was called the blue room, and immediately she was confused. In the middle of the room, there were heaps of clothing. And underneath that pile, it was unmistakable. It was a figure of a person underneath the clothes. His bloody hand was sticking out. So the day that I officially really stay overnight is the day I discover Austin's body. Okay. Okay? Officially, you don't know it's Austin's No, I don't know. I so didn't even see a face. All I saw was a body and, and a bloody hand sticking out of Okay, clothes. so when you say body, how much of a body? Like the back side of it, and then uh, his hand sticking out of clothes. Okay. So I didn't see a face. If that's okay. what you're asking, no face. Okay. And I did not see anybody else, but the way that she could have been on, you know. Anyway, no speculation. Point being is, me and Kim both home, came home to take a shower. Kim took a shower and left. I took a shower and opened the fucking door. Jennifer was horrified, but instantly went into survival mode. She had spent enough time in the house when she visited with her friend Kim to know that Mike was paranoid, and she believed that he had cameras all around the house. I open the door, and right here on the ground is heaps of clothing. I can see the figure of a body, like he, like, and then the hand sticking up. Okay. And it's just, I just remember a bloody hand. That's it. Now Mike has cameras and computers everywhere. Mm -hmm. Plus, he's directly underneath me. He knows everything, every creek. Jennifer backed out of the room, quietly shutting the door. She was too smart to think that Mike wouldn't know that she'd been inside the room. It wasn't worth taking a chance playing dumb. Mike knew every creak of the house. He was the type of person who knew if a door was open based on a small change in temperature or wind. She knew there was no point in trying to act like she hadn't been inside the room. Summoning every ounce of courage she had, she slowly walked down the stairs, looking for Mike. So... I immediately shut the door, do a Hail Mary, and walk down the stairs and go tell him I think I fucked up. In that moment, Jennifer decided to play it cool, actually joking about what she'd seen in that room, an attempt to make Mike feel comfortable. We'll never know, but acting like what she'd seen didn't bother her, potentially, would save her life. And he looked at me. He's like, why? Said, I did something in your house I shouldn't have did right now. I just opened the door. And he looked at me. And then I... My dumbass says something like to the fact that, well, don't worry, Halloween's my favorite holiday and I love props. And he started laughing his ass off. Okay. And then that was it. Okay. I went back upstairs. A couple hours later, you know, I was in the living room. A couple hours later, he told me, is there somewhere he can drop me because he needs to clean up the mess? Jennifer asked if she could borrow Mike's truck. And surprisingly, he said yes. Not only had Jennifer admitted that she'd seen the bloody hand underneath a pile of clothes, but she'd also seen something in the basement. 
So the day that he told me he had to clean up the mess, and, and I said, rather than drop me off, can I just take your truck? Uh -huh. Okay, while I'm doing this, he's getting plastic, and where the wash basin is and the washer and dryer is there, he covered everything, the ceiling, every part of that part of the downstairs with thick, clear plastic. And when you say downstairs, you mean in the basement? Yeah. Is that and That's his hand cave. That's where he stays at. Okay. And I think you mentioned about guns. Tell yes. Me that. Yeah. Uh, well, he when I came home the night that he had got to a scuffle, I seen sh shell casings in the washer. Jennifer wouldn't return to Mike's place for seven days. But during that time, she would text him. As I ask him if he's okay, that's when he turns to the computer and starts texting me and telling me weird things. Apparently, the two residents that were renting the room upstairs, because we were downstairs at the point, at this point, that's where he spends most of his time. He had told me he had tried to lock him out of his house twice that yeah. day. And that people are trash and uh, they don't, they steal from you and yada, yada, yada. He emailed me a couple of weird things. I got kind of spooked out and I left on and come back for a couple more days. So, this conversation you had with him, was it person to person or electronically? It was mainly electronic. Okay. Yeah. But by the time Jennifer returned to Michael Dudley's home seven days later, he wouldn't let her sleep in Kim's room. He made her sleep in the blue room, which had belonged to Austin and Jessica. It was now hers. And she says when she turned on the TV in that room, the Roku would say Austin, and that Jennifer had been living in that room and had only recently moved out before she went to talk with the police that day. And you never met these people? No. Okay. Uh, did you ever ask Mike about the TV or anything like that? No. Okay. Is the TV still there? Yes. Okay. Um, anything else in that room besides what you saw after he cleaned up? I mean, is the room uh, furniture in it now or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I just looked down and noticed something yesterday. You're going to freak out. It looks like a bullet hole. Okay. Okay, so look at the nightstand, and I never noticed it. Be and then there, actually, and, then, and at the foot of the bed, it looked like a bullet was grazed, too. Jennifer said that she feared for her life, that Mike had taken her phone from her and wiped it clean. When I did come back the day after, I wasn't even talking about that situation because I don't want to talk about it. Right. And he kept saying, your room's ready for you. Your room's ready for you. I said, why are you having me go in? move in that room because Kim's not there no more. He goes, why do you think? Hmm. You know? Yeah. Psychologically, fuck me up. Yeah. Every day. When I turn on the TV up, fuck me up. Every day, fuck me up. Take a breath. Well, for some reason, I said, what happened? And he said, let's just put it this way. His gun misfired and mine did it. Okay. But he never gave you names or anything like that? No, and he never commented on Jessica or nothing. Okay. So, you know, I didn't even hear I knew. Right. You know what I'm saying? But... Here. Thank you. It's not the best, but at least you... <laughs> I get it. I appreciate you talking to me. And he won't give me the keys to my car. Like, the other day, he has GPA. He reads all my shit. If I know he could even be listening to us. You know that? With Ambient listening, I mean, I used to have everywhere in my phone. I know all that shit. Right. And that's why, you know, I didn't even care. You had my phone for a little bit. Last <laughs> night, he says, you're at SARS? How does he know I was at SARS last night? Right. I said, oh, yeah, Magic Mike. I call him Magic Mike because he makes things disappear. He thinks it's funny. Okay. And but he, he knew I was at SARS last night. Well, and he was tried your phone to on? If your phone my Wi-Fi is. It doesn't yeah. matter. He has a tracker on my car. Yeah. He has a truck on every car he has. He always knows where I'm at. Jennifer says she didn't leave Mike's house because she feared for her life. For some reason, that man shares everything with me. That boy shares a lot with me, and I think he does because of the circumstances now. Mm -hmm. And he has the audacity to tell me this brought us closer. How do, how do you... Let me just say something real fast, even though this is being recorded. It didn't sit well with me that this man let people walk around the house for how many days while well, the, these people's bodies were there before I opened the door. How long, much right. longer would he have let that go if I didn't open the door? You know what I'm saying? He also made cracks jokes on the seven days on text, not email, and some email. You'll see. It'll blow you out of the water. The sewer gas is getting to me. I'm smart. My IQ is 165. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm not I'm a dummy. I mean... 
make dumb decisions when I'm not dummy. And at that point, I couldn't report to anybody because I, I was scared for my life. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Jennifer's friend Kim, the one who had lived at Mike's place before her and would let her stay with her in the room sometimes before she stayed in Austin and Jessica's room, would explain that she only used Mike's house to clean up and store her stuff there, that she met Jessica in Austin about three times when she was living at Mike's place, but that the last time that Kim went back to the house, she'd walked by Mike's truck, and there were green and white garbage bags in the back. She would say that the bags had an overpowering odor, like something she'd never smelled before. And that the last time that this witness had spoken to Mike, he told her that Austin had stolen some vehicles from the guys that had assaulted him and Jessica. That Austin had brought these vehicles back to his house. But Mike would add, quote, you're not going to have to worry about them anymore. On August 9th, two months after Jessica and Austin's remains were found, detectives would obtain a search warrant for Mike's home on Ambon Boulevard. As the search was happening, Mike was taken into custody and was left to stew for more than two hours in an interrogation room as CSI detectives scoured his residence. Neighbors would come out of the woodwork, telling police that they'd called 911 the night of June 9, 2020. Police confirmed that neighbors had called 911 on June 9 at around 7.15. Remember, the last call logged on Jessica's phone was around 7.08. 911, what are you reporting? Hi, um, my husband and I believe that we just heard gunshots next door, and now we can hear somebody screaming for help. Which way Weird. from your house? It's it's directly, it's kind of in our backyard to the right. It's like our next door neighbor, but they're in, so they're technically like not on our street. Okay. But our, our house borders with their backyard. Okay. And does it sound like a man or a woman screaming, or can you tell? It sounds like a man. Okay. You didn't see anything, you just heard the shots and then now the yelling. Correct. Okay, I'll get somebody else to see what's going on there. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. The woman's husband would call 911 again and give clarifying information about the address where they'd heard the shots and screams coming from. It was Michael Dudley's home. 911, what are you reporting? Hi, my wife called just a minute ago about possible gunshots next door and someone screaming for help. And what I have to, um, I think I believe she gave our address, but she was talking yes. about our neighbor. The actual the actual address for our neighbor's house because it's our backyard neighbor is got it, and that's where it came from. Yes. Okay, let me update them. Your name? Yeah, and they're kind of like our back door neighbors. Have you heard any additional disturbance since then? Um. Yeah. The the kind of the yelling kind of continued and just asking for help, saying please stop, don't do this. Let me just leave. Let me just leave. Let me just leave. Oh, the police are arriving now. I want you to go talk to them, write them right. down, and tell them where they're going. They're getting my updates. All right. Thank you, sir. Apparently, Burian police had come to the scene a short time later, but when nobody answered the door, they left. Back in the Seattle Police Department interrogation room, Michael Dudley was left sitting alone as investigators poured over every inch of his property. Michael Dudley had fallen in and out of sleep as he sat on a hard chair with his arms folded, his head tilted back and resting on the wall. He was an older man with short, balding gray hair, glasses, and was wearing a forest green t-shirt. Hey, Mike. How you doing, partner? Detective Cooper, see how please. Can you sit up for a second? You awake? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if anybody's done this for you yet. Um, I'm going to give you your rights real quick. At this time, the investigator explains why he's been sitting there for the last couple of hours. We took you into custody, bringing you in to talk to you. At the same time, I served a warrant on your residence. And I, I figured this part been sitting here all day, right? Exactly. I have forensic people out there going through your property and things like that. And I just want to get how much you know about uh, Austin and Jessica that lived with you. Because apparently that's, that's the last place they were seen alive. Okay. Mike would say that he met Austin and Jessica through Austin's aunt, Renee, who he had become good friends with and who'd stayed at his place. Mike would travel to California, for his computer work. 
And there, he had started to stay at Airbnbs. It gave him the idea to open his house up to travelers. So did you open up an Airbnb? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was until this COVID-19. Right, until this thing kicked in. According to Michael Dudley, he worked with computers, and he realized he could operate his home sort of like an Airbnb. And Austin's aunt, Renee, would help him run the business. But the pandemic shut everything down. And by then, Austin and Jessica were staying in the Blue Room. But he and Jessica moved into your place then, or they were, end up staying there during the quarantine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And which room uh, would be... Well, they, had, they had both rooms at one point. Um, uh, I think the last one was the blue room. Austin, Jessica, and Mike lived together during the COVID lockdown. And Mike would allege that Austin was a prolific thief. Detectives asked Mike if he was angry at Austin for bringing a so-called criminal element to his property, referring to the bullet that Mike found in the mailbox with Austin's name on it, supposedly a message from the guys Austin had allegedly stolen from. Do you remember an incident where someone left a bullet in your guys' mailbox for him with his name on it? Yeah, I found that, yeah. Dudley would tell the police that there were a lot of people who could have wanted Austin and Jessica dead. Anybody else ever come up there and uh, cause grief to... uh, uh, Austin or Jessica or anything? No, he, he was very private and secretive. And mm-hmm. I don't recall, I mean, he was like, you know, didn't want people to know where he was. He had some issues with, and like I told him, I don't want to know, you know, I don't have time for all this, you know, bullshit. I agree with you. Uh, but, you know, again, we were quarantined together and, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, um, got to know him pretty good, mm-hmm. you know, and her got to know him both pretty good, and um, he, like I said, he that's what he did. He stole. Mm-hmm. You know, he would prefer to do that over work, and um, uh, there's a lot of people that. Uh, um, At around this point, the detectives would leave the room and come back. When they did, they explained that the CSI team had found stuff at Mike's property. They would find bullet holes, bullet strikes, spent rounds, and blood in the so-called blue room where Jessica and Austin had been staying. Okay, so it's just the three of you. I I gotta ask you, you ever shoot your gun in your house? Uh, I have occasionally, uh, uh, I think the minute I had a uh, misfire. Okay. Sometimes. But, uh, Can you explain that to me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm asking <laughs> it was loaded. I, I, well, I know, but... Uh, We're playing around with it. Um, the, reason, um, the reason I ask is, you know, my forensic people, they're finding stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and it's like, hey... We oh, found well, them. you know, that thing's been there for like 50 years, too. Every New Year's and Fourth of July, mm-hmm. stuff comes... Rolling, rolling down through the roof. I've got at least two, two uh, uh, whole roof holes that are okay. needing repair. But um, uh, what are your friendship people finding? I mean, well, they're in the blue room, mm-hmm. and they there's they said there's a bullet. There's two bullet strikes on the wooden bed frame. So I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, okay, yeah. So can I mean, yeah. Can you explain that? that? I had that. I got that from my friend Tom, and mm-hmm. um, you know, been there for a long time. Well, again, we're looking for any sign. I mean, knowing that that that's the last place they were mm-hmm. seen alive, trying to figure out which room they were in. You're saying the blue room. Yeah. Okay. Can you see where? To me, as an investigator, it's like I got a a bed frame here, and there's uh, bullet strikes on the bed frame. Okay. Did you uh, see anything about them in the news about? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, so, what did you see all about in the news about that? Uh, I heard something about uh, Alki Beach and, right. and uh, washed up in suitcase full of garbage bags or something. Okay. And did you hear anything about the cause of death or anything? Like, you know, they've been shot or anything like that? Yeah, I read something about that. Yeah. Okay. So, with that being said, people are like pointing the finger at you. Yeah. I go out there, I'm getting a whole lot of people that that know you, that maybe don't like you, 
Okay, so I'm just... Uh, who, who doesn't like me? Well, again, well, we all... Not everybody likes everybody, okay? There's people that don't I like... Who that bitch next door? Well, I can't... Again, I told you, I'm not going to tell you who it is. I can't do that. And no one... Has anybody ever been injured in that room or anything? Because I'm being told there's blood in the room, too. When Michael Dudley was asked about the blood that was found in the blue room, he would explain to investigators that Jessica had cut herself before. And when asked if the blood was hers... He said he didn't know. And now cadaver dogs are alerting in the basement. Remember where Jennifer had said that before she left the night on June 9th, she went in the basement and saw that Mike had heavy plastic spread all over? They're, they're alerting down in the basement and stuff like that uh-huh. to stuff. And there's some stains down there and stuff like that. Uh, I'm just telling you. What, and that, I'm trying to uh, see if you can explain in the basement. Uh, I have not, so is it... It is a freaking disaster. Okay. Is there a chance the, uh, you bled down there? Anybody bled down there? I'm just where I work and sleep a lot of times just down there. Okay. And um, uh, what, what are you talking about, bled or... Well, cadaver dogs sit on decomposition. Band-aids or no, rats or... It, anything. Anything that's... Uh, usually they, they're trained to hit on human decomposition of a body. Mm. Uh, I don't know what that is. Well, when you die, you start to decompose. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I know, I know. So, that, so I'm, I'm asking if there's a reason why there's these animals... dead bodies in my basement. I'm sure of that. Let's okay. Put it that way. Even in the chicken coop or anything like that? You can go have a look. Uh, but I am a little concerned. You said I am under arrest. Technically, you're under arrest, yeah. For what? Investigation of homicide. Invest- what does that mean? I mean? That means you haven't been charged with a crime. Okay, I was going to say... Well, when it says investigation of, that means that's why you're here. We're yeah. investigating it. And that's why I'm questioning you. Uh-huh. And that's why I'm asking you about the strikes and the the blood stuff yeah, and everything yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, I, I know. Um, so, uh, there's uh, a couple of things that I think... You should, uh, to, you know, I, I probably should lawyer up, but I want It's to, your choice. I, well, no, um, I, you need to know uh, some of this because, I mean, they were my friends. And, mm-hmm. uh, Although Mike brought up an attorney, he never invoked his right to one or stopped talking, even when the detectives brought up the clothes. And Dad's like, well, I went out to Mike's place on, off Ambom. Uh, yeah, like the, he came by yeah. looking for him. And uh, he's like, well, he, he left in a huff, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, as I was leaving, I saw at his garbage dumpster, you know, clothes that I was pretty sure it was my kid's clothes. And I just thought that was really odd. And Oh, they left garbage. I mean, but, um, um, yeah, they, they left a ton of um, crap, clothes, and just shit. Uh, and, uh, you know, I skipped out on the rent. And so, hmm. Or is they know, were paying your rent? Uh, they made kind of an effort to pay rent. What was that rent? How much were they supposed to pay you? Uh, it wasn't even close to what, you know, what, what you know, they, they, they would come up with like uh, three, four hundred dollars, maybe, you know, once or twice a month and throwing food stamps and do some work. It, was there a set amount or? Uh, it was fifteen hundred. Basically, Mike talks about everything but what he thinks happened to Jessica and Austin. Mike pivots to his health issues. Never in my life had you know, been bit by a spider, um, but had any idea. But like, it started with a welt on my forehead, uh-huh. and it turned into a knot. Then, like by the second day, I had like a black necrotic rash across the top of my Did head. Did you get bit on the head? Yep, right, right there. Ooh. And then um, the the black rash uh, uh, turned into like red sores, mm-hmm. and then like freaking larvae started popping out of my head at work, and then um, uh, I started getting these worms and flies. Uh, for real? For real. Uh, <coughs> Uh, this all happened like within the space of a few days or you know, a week or so. Right. Mike would go back to his financial hardships as a result of the spider bite, how he hasn't been working for the past year, and how his neighbors have been giving him a hard time about all the cars he has on his property that he bought at an auction. Mike would also allege that his neighbor was poisoning his chickens. 
I'm sure she's poisoning my chickens. Mm -hmm. The third, third one. How many chickens do you have out there? I think I got five or six left. Mm -hmm. Five. Um, I've had three of them die in the last uh, two or three weeks, mm -hmm. which is I mean that's unusual. First one I thought was chickens are happened. pretty hardy too. Yeah. Uh, so I thought she's poisoning them. Um, and yesterday, uh, my favorite one is killed over. And I'm beside myself. Um, I called uh, 911 just to uh, mm -hmm. you know, get a report filed. And, uh, you know, the sheriff pulls up and starts walking over. And um, I go up there with the dead chicken to him. And he looks at me kind of strange. <laughs> and apparently he'd been called dispatch to go look at the quote-unquote abandoned cars. Yeah. So let me ask you, if, if you had to guess or surmise what happened to Austin and Jessica, I mean, I mean, they're, they're dead. So they met, they met their end with, by homicidal means for whatever reason. I mean, any idea what happened? I mean, when you heard about this, did any thought go through your head as far as what uh, happened? You know, I felt kind of sad, but also, um, like, that was the gangster lifestyle he was living. And I tried to tell him, you know, that's kind of like, you know, it don't, it don't work out well, you know? Right. It's not happily ever after. So you didn't have a beef with them at all? Well, we had little beefs with them, you know, I was, you know, always, you know. Well, I mean like a beef with well, He's my friend. He's okay. my friend. The questions become more pointed. You don't remember the cops coming on the 9th of June to your house? No. Knocking on the door? I never saw her talk to any cops. Okay. If they came and knocked on the door, would you answer? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. You have a video system in your house? Video uh, security system? I have a camera, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the retention period on it? 30 days. 30 days? I think, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it, there's a reason we don't... When people start pointing the finger at people that... I mean, Austin and Jessica lived at your place. That was the last place they lived at. They actually told people, if something bad happened to me, you know, this Mike motherfucker did shit to me. I'm just telling you. Well, his mom told me that. Who? Austin's mom. Austin. Austin's mom told you what? What part of... I just said that you don't Mike understand. Mike did shit to them? Uh-huh. If something ever happened to Mike him... Mike did shit. What does that mean? You tell me. I don't know. They said if anything bad ever happened to us, look at Mike. Why would they even I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Michael Dudley denied having anything to do with the murders of Jessica Lewis and Austin Wenner. On August 24, 2020, he would be charged with two counts of second-degree manslaughter. His bail was set at $5 million. And it wasn't long before details about his past began to emerge. King Five would report that Dudley's ex-girlfriend would allege that he had violently assaulted her and that in 2016 he was arrested and charged with the assault. Westside Seattle would report that Michael Dudley had a sexual assault restraining order filed against him by his daughter in 2018. According to court documents, his daughter would say that Dudley, quote, sexually assaulted me for nine years from the age of 10 until 18 by drugging and raping me. The daughter said she didn't feel safe in her home and that she didn't feel safe when she left her home to go to work. She would also say that he had displayed and threatened to use a firearm and other dangerous weapons and that he presented a serious and imminent threat to public health and safety. Unbelievably, that restraining order would be denied by the court. Citing the complaint against Dudley did not meet the definitions of a sexual assault petition. The court determined the complaint fell under domestic violence. Westside Seattle would also interview Gina Jask, Jessica Lewis's aunt, who she was really close to. Jask would describe Michael Dudley as a, quote, sicko, and she would give a snapshot of what life was like living with Michael Dudley. She would say, quote, sometimes he would break their car so they couldn't leave. He put trackers on people's cars. Anytime he ever got in a dispute with anybody, he would tell them to leave, but try to lock them in the house. He killed the dog in front of them and left the carcass outside for three days to scare them. They had nowhere to go. That's why they stayed there, end quote. We'll never know exactly what happened to Jessica and Austin, 
But it's believed that Michael Dudley was angry at the couple for falling behind on their rent payments. He was embittered by the belief that they had brought a criminal element to his home. Ultimately, the state's case was largely circumstantial. Police were never able to find the gun used in the murders, and only a smudge of Austin's blood was found in the blue room, where investigators believe that Jessica and Austin were fatally shot. Based on witness testimony, it's believed that after Dudley dismembered their bodies, he left them to decompose in his backyard before disposing of their remains in a suitcase and duffel bags that were later pulled from the Puget Sound and the Duwamish River. Phone records showed that Dudley's cell phone pinged off a tower near Alki Beach late at night on June 18th, nine days after they were believed to have been murdered, and just one day before a group of teenagers called 911 after recording that TikTok video of the washed-up suitcase that they'd opened up with a stick. After a two-month trial, a jury would deliberate for a day and a half before returning a verdict of guilty on two counts of second-degree murder for the deaths of 35-year-old Jessica Lewis and 27-year-old Austin Wenner. 65-year-old Michael Dudley would be sentenced to more than 46 years in prison. Michael Dudley would give a statement to the judge, saying that Jessica and Austin's death had nothing to do with unpaid rent. He would say, quote, This isn't really about me. It's about justice for Austin and Jessica. And when all things are considered, I'm sure the truth will come out. In the end, they did good, despite their pernicious nature. Michael Dudley intends to appeal his conviction. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.